Axe Body Spray. What? Axe Body Spray. What about Axe Body Spray? Is that what you're wearing? No. I guess I don't have Al Pacino skills. Well, I'm not a woman. I guess that's it, right? <laughs> that's called courage. That's called integrity. That's the stuff of a good podcast. <laughs> Alright, I'm digging it. <laughs> Iggy Pop! Amen! Let it right! I'm a fucking idiot! Red meat, we crave sustenance. I'm an artist. Hello, my name is Jimmy Puppy. Why don't you have some fun? Fun! Tommy, that's a pay pay. Whoever she is, I'm gonna find her and I'm gonna hurt her. I've spent the past three years learning Finnish! <laughs> I'm always home, I'm on cool. This is a process of dehumanization. Shut, 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 shut up! Hello and welcome everyone to this week's edition of the P.S. I Love Hoffman podcast, our love letter to the remarkable career of the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm Brian Rodriguez. And I'm Kyle Reinfried. We're always home, we're always uncool, and we're always ready to talk great movies. Ain't that the truth. <laughs> Today we'll be chatting about the film that pretty much created a career for Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was working after this yeah. all the time, and, and usually great movies. Of course, we're talking about Scent of a Woman. Is that the original Sixth Sense, Scent of a Woman? Like being able <laughs> it's not to... even the original version of this film, actually. It's actually in a remake of an Italian film. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw it. Yeah. I don't speak Italian. Yeah, the guy helped write the screenplay, I think. Or oh, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, like oh, some author. Or at least he got a credit. Yeah, okay. At the very there least. Go. He was given credit, yeah. So, Kyle, tell us a little bit more, I guess, about Scent of a Woman. Okay, so the bare bones story of uh, Scent of a Woman, it's about this uh, new relationship between Frank, played by uh, Al Pacino. He's a blind, retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Army, and then there's Charlie, who's played by uh, Chris O'Donnell. He's a student that attends this uh, very prestigious uh, boarding school. Yeah, I think... Called uh, Baird. Baird, something like that. Yeah, they have two presidents, apparently. Yeah, so... um, People run the State Department... So Charlie, um, played by O'Donnell, he answers this personal ad on like a message board at the school, and it's from the niece of uh, Frank, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade, and she, yeah, (laughs) and she pretty much says that she's going to her husband's in-laws for Thanksgiving, and she needs someone to kind of lack of a better way to say it, a caretaker, but pretty much she's like treating like babysitting. Yeah, you know, it's adult baby watering seven. down his uh, John Daniels. <laughs> if you've known Jack as long as he has, you can call him John. Yeah, I love that line. And so yeah, so he's pretty much he's watching over the Thanksgiving weekend. And the big thing is Charlie is at this prestigious school. He's from uh, Oregon. He always says, "I love how Pacino like properly says, says Oregon." No, he doesn't do the "gone" at the end. He says Oregon. No, he says Oregon. He says Oregon. Oh, okay. O'Donnell says Oregon. Oh, okay. He says Oregon. Oregon, which is weird. Which is yeah. Okay. But, um, so, Charlie goes to this prestigious school, and he's from, uh, Oregon, or Oregon, and his parents, blue collar, own a convenience store, or whatever, and he's there on scholarship, he's a, he's working in the library there, and he's picking up this, uh, job for, what is he making, 300 bucks? 300 bucks, for, I mean, like, it's pretty good pay, it's not That's bad. good pay, yeah, for, I mean, it's four, four days of work, I guess, For a high school kid? Yeah, I mean it's not like a, easy. I think he's is that, I did they ever officially say is he a junior or senior? Because obviously he's looking at college, but it wasn't like definite. I, it's the end of his junior year, I'd imagine. Because on the checklist it says 
she she's looking for a junior or a senior. And then yeah. as far as college talk and like if the, I had to guess he's a junior. And the Harvard bribe obviously doesn't have college figured out yet. Yeah. So I'll go and, with junior. Yeah, we'll go with that. So yeah, junior making three hundred bucks over four days and uh and this came out in nineteen ninety two. So inflation. Uh, it's the, it's good money. Yeah. And early, he, he he's doing Clinton this of course. Years. <laughs> he's doing no, isn't it? It's no, it's when well, what's the year of the film? Ninety two. Oh, I thought I had it as ninety one. No, it's ninety two. Weird. That's what the thing said. What thing? Regardless, how do we? It's not early Clinton years, even still. That's Bush still. Oh, Bush is not okay. Clinton's ninety three. Well, he won the election of ninety two. Thank you. Clinton years. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look at the what the stocks changed right after like uh, Trump. Uh, one of the I don't know what I'm talking about. Let's not talk <laughs> politics. It's a Philip Seymour Hoffman podcast. We're getting into politics. Yes, he he very you know publicly refused to talk politics. So. We will as well. Yes, we'll uh, respect <laughs> the wishes of the late genius. Of, yes, exactly. So, besides that, I mean, let's just start from the beginning because that's actually the first person that talks in this movie is Philip Seymour. Yeah, which is which is awesome. What like seconds in, like a minute in. Yeah, you kind of I mean, get you see this little thing of Charlie, and what is he looking like? You know. Yeah, it's probably like the first dialogue we'll probably get is two or three minutes in because it's just yeah. kind of and uh, flashing so, through. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays George Willis Jr. That's important because then there's George Willis Sr., his father, that goes to bat for him and everything like that. <laughs> and the biggest thing is like this kid just from the get-go is obnoxious. Obnoxious. Calls uh, Charlie Chaz. Just like, It's know. funny because like at this prep school – He's like one of the cool guys, right? But like, yeah, he's he's still a rich snobby kid. He's the son of millionaires, but almost all of them presumably are. Charlie, not you know, Charlie being the exception. One of, yeah, one of the few, these few kids going to this elite. And it's school. it's almost it's like it's academy. obvious that the kids who are on scholarship, the kids who are there, just on I think they or grant or as they call it, I think. Yeah. Um, I think uh. One of the friends, you know, invites him to ski in like Switzerland. To, well, first they're going, first they're going to, to Vermont, Vermont, and then he tells them about and then Switzerland. Over Christmas break, they're going to go to to Stad, right? And, yeah, and they basically tell, you know, they admit that they invited him almost as a joke because they knew he could never afford it. Yeah, you always like the real Phil Hoffman's like the second douche in command, <laughs> and then there's like the first guy. Yeah, and the, the he's f- the one, you know. I love his little crew. It's him, and it's like that redheaded guy. Yeah. And it's like that other guy who I've seen in a million things. Yeah, you know, his biggest thing that I always think of him from? High Fidelity. Yeah, High Fidelity. Of, of our so he's such a meek guy. He's the meek guy. He's got, Jack Black, he's John got hair Cusack. in this one. Yeah. There's Jack Black, John, John Cusack, and then that guy. His name's Dick in High Fidelity. Yeah. One of my favorite films. One Obviously, of my favorite films, too. We won't be discussing that on the podcast. Though Philip Smurhoffen could have done the Jack Black thing. You totally. Played it differently. Played yeah. it differently, but... Again, another podcast for another day. <laughs> but yeah, so you got this crew of like douches. The only those are the only schoolboys you meet. You meet Charlie, and then this group of like, like four douches: Phil Seymour <laughs> Hoffman, the then the main douche kid that uh, pretty much creates this incident where the drama in this film kind of comes from obviously mostly from Pacino, but then Charlie's big incident in the film is that he witnesses this prank that these. Uh, this douche click sets up 
and he clearly, you know, it's far away, but he knows who it is, especially because Phyllis from Hoffman's next to him and distracting that professor. Yeah, so I believe, as you said, Charlie works in the library. Yeah. And Phyllis from Hoffman, do you think he actually intended to borrow that book? I don't think that was like a ruse from the get-go. Yeah, he totally went there. He wasn't part of that because he whistles. He wouldn't have whistled and made that loud noise. Yeah, I figured, right? So he goes and he, he goes to borrow a book, and Charlie basically lets him in later Yeah. to borrow just some book for a class. He's know? like, bring it back in the morning. Then they exit the library, and they see the three you know douche gang, and <laughs> they're setting up. We don't know what they're setting up, but they're putting something over this lamppost, and then all of a sudden... This uh, one of the old female professors comes, and Philip Seymour Hoffman's distracting her. I think we'll play that clip for you, actually. <laughs> That's my voice. <laughs> what are you doing? Keep your voice down. I'll tell you about it in the morning. <laughs> Miss Hunsaker. George. You have a nice day. Why all the noise? <laughs> <laughs> I'm messing around with Chaz. Good evening, Charles. Yeah. Hi, Miss Hunsaker. What was that? I don't know, ma'am. <laughs> well, who were those boys? Oh, who knows? What were they doing? Charles. Um, did you did you make this scarf yourself? No, George, I bought it. Yeah, because it's a beauty. Thank it you, really George. Is. In, in case I don't see you before the Thanksgiving holidays, why don't you give me one of your big hugs? Oh, George. Please. Good evening, Come boys. on. <laughs> and so, yeah. So he distracts her. He's being all schmoozy, Eddie Haskell-esque. Like, that's his, you know, he does he does those great characters. <laughs> Said in the last podcast, I'll say in so many more. Those are like some, you know, just that worming in kind of character. But upscale douche, you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, but like sneaky. like Sneaky. He always makes you... I mean, he plays this great that, like, you want to be his buddy even Mm -hmm. though you don't trust this guy. And he tries to be your buddy. He tries to be your friend. He tries to take you into his confidence. But he's got ulterior, usually selfish motives. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. In that time, I think before that scene even, we first meet uh, Lieutenant Colonel Slade when Charlie goes. Yes. And, boy... Just, yeah, exactly. Give me a good hua. Hoo Here, Pacino, can we get one? Hoo Perfect. <laughs> and, well, uh, yeah. Sorry, just, just I just keep thinking about the trip. Um, Steve Coogan. Yeah, Steve, great trip. Side, side note, <laughs> great trip. The trip. Great, great trip. Great film, <laughs> great the trip. trip. And uh, Rob Ryden does great Pacino. Oh, it's an okay Pacino, but it's hilarious in the movie. Yeah, it's hilarious in context. Yeah, there. in context. At what point did it become? Yeah, go one day. He went to this. bed, he said to his wife, he said, Mrs. Pacino, I'm going to sleep now. Good night, I'll see you in the morning. Good night to all the kids, all of the pets, Good everybody. Good night to the help. Good night. Good, Good night, Al. Sleep well. He, he turns over, he wakes up in the morning. What do you got? I've got laryngitis. For the rest of my life. Yeah, so we meet uh, Lieutenant Colonel Slade. And he's just like, he just shouts from the get-go. Yeah. So, okay. Wait, 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 question. Is this a southern accent that he's doing? Like, what yeah, is We this? meet his family later on. They don't have one. They're not They're southern. From, like, they live in New York. Yeah, they live does, in White Plains, I think. He does that. <laughs> Charlie. <Yeah>. Charlie. <laughs> I don't know. I'm talking like I'm from Louisiana. <laughs> well, it, think about it. This Kitchen movie... Kitchen Fresh Popeyes. <laughs> <laughs> we know this movie today. I mean, you know, 
regardless of the Philip Seymour Hoffman thing. This is not known as Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. This is an Al Pacino film, you know. He won the Academy Award for this. His performance is considered just... This is a seminal performance. This is one of the all-time, at least most famous performances. This is Al Pacino, who arguably one of the greatest actors of our generation. Yeah. Like, this is his only Academy Award win. And th- that's what the movie's really known for. Really known for? And then... I don't know what was what. How did you feel like now seeing Pacino in so many roles and he ever, <laughs> I don't know since he like okay. This to me, he was he's excellent in this, but it's one of those things. It's like how like Scorsese ended up winning for Departed, and people are like, wow, think about all his films beforehand. So some people consider it like a, you know, as an award that you know for all of his roles. And I mean, like I mean there's probably some of that at the time. I mean, definitely there, there's elements of that. Is this great its performance? I don't know. But do you think that now seeing the roles he's done after, <laughs> now going back and watching it, does did that have kind of like, you know? Well, there, it, just seeing like how lampooned he's been for like his new voice, his like post-cigarette voice. Yeah. This, I mean, I don't know, we don't do an Al Pacino podcast. I don't know Al Pacino's, like, career arc. This certainly seemed like a comeback for him. Or at least, I mean, I guess, I think he did Glengarry Glen Ross the same year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was nominated, yeah. And he was nominated for, for, yeah, supporting supporting actor. actor And lead actor, one lead actor. Yeah, and one lead actor. But, so, maybe it's not so much a comeback, but this is like, oh, wow. I think people started to really appreciate Al Pacino here. Yeah. I mean, because even in The Godfather, he he was a little underappreciated in The Godfather films. It was always because it's Brando, Brando, and then De Niro one. Yeah. Um, and then it's like oh, because in The Godfather he talks like this. (laughs) He's just Michael, Michael, like uh, Fredo, you betrayed me. Now you're just ripping the. uh, (laughs) Now I'm just ripping from the trip, yeah. (laughs) Trip, but uh, it's 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 true though. Like somehow this voice changes, and he won for this, but it's almost like he said. Then he went, oh, that's what I won for. That's what I'll do the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, just like everything he does. And I'll just get more roostery. And yeah, he like just is, this is the beginning of a transformation yeah, into a he rooster. Gets, he gets his okay in here. Okay, I'll, I'm going to put this out there. My, again, it's not a Pacino podcast, but my last favorite Pacino role is him in Ocean's 13. He's like such a fun bad guy. Kyle, admit it. What's your real last favorite Pacino role? Well, I think Ocean's 13 is after that one. Oh, really? I don't know. But Wait, there which, is one, a, which one am I talking about? Then? You're thinking of the Am Sandler one, right? You know yeah, what is it? Jack, Jack and Jill. Jill. Jack and Jill. And he plays himself. And he, you have to, like, there's a little, like, you have to admire that he's, like, dancing with cross-dressed Adam Sandler. It's ridiculous. It made me laugh at some points. It's a horrible movie, trust me. But Ocean's 13, he just has a great, he's like, okay. And then I just heard a lovely okay in this film. I'm like, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of, like, what I last loved of him. So anyway... Let's get back to Philip Seymour Hoffman since he's like really in the beginning. Of well, this. actually, I was pleasantly surprised because this is our own, the only the second film that we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And he's a pivotal role in this film. He's not yeah. just like a side character. He's not just like in the last uh, film we did, uh, Triple Bogey. On yeah, a par yeah. Five hole. And, and Triple Bogey on a par five hole. He, you know, he just has the one scene. He's clearly a ancillary character. Mm-hmm. Here, while he's not the main character, he's a pivotal character. He's a super important character. Yeah, well, I read up on some uh, facts on this film, and he, I mean, so many people, we're talking in the role of Chris O'Donnell and uh, Pacino, 
you had like the cream of the crop auditioning. They were looking at Jack Nicholson, yeah, he Harrison was the first Ford, choice, right? Joe Pesci, and Pacino's agent actually. Pacino didn't want to do it, and Pacino's agent talked him into it, and they thanked him obviously after winning a freaking Academy Award. <laughs> but uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman auditioned five times before getting cast. Wow! And but he really. He was, oh, I, this, wait, I have a great thing in, in uh, common with him. He worked at a deli in New York. That's what he was doing at the time as an income. I used to work at a deli, so a nice little <laughs> kindred delicatessen. I could see him working spirits. at a deli. I yeah. could see that. But the biggest thing is he cited this film as what changed his career. And on top of that, P.T. Anderson, as we said the last time, and we'll keep saying is his biggest collaborator, he says that this is the role that caught his eye of Philip Seymour Hoffman and made him write in that specific role that we'll talk about when we get to Hard Eight. Mm, so he saw this movie. I, I, I think that's probably true with a lot of directors, a lot of casting agents. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it happened pretty early on for him. This is only his second great. feature. It's his second film. And, and it's, it's really a... his first mainstream feature. To- totally. Like, the last one, people, you heard it, you listened to last week, it was a minute-long scene, and I don't know how much... In a film that did not get a lot of exposure. No. And intentionally, it was more of an art film. Yeah. The, I mean, this is the first time we really see, like, we're, I guess, mainstream. This, this movie was a hit. It made money. Yeah. And people really saw this guy, and they were like, this guy can do it. This, this is like... Would you mind if I read... I found this quote from P.T. Anderson. Would you mind if I read this lovely quote? I'm all, I you can't know, stop you. You know I'm all about bromance. And he <laughs> that just, is very and true. And it made me tear up a little bit because you just wanted, like, he did not work with him on uh, There Will Be Blood, but besides that, he was in all his other films. During his lifetime. During yeah, his lifetime, obviously. yeah. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm so. just a little curious because I feel like he would have fit in there, there Will Be Blood, but who knows, maybe he was busy. He was, I'm going to look up what he was doing that year. I bet he was conflicted somehow. <laughs> but anyway, this is what P.T. Anderson uh, had to say, and unfortunately you're going to have to hear my voice. Couldn't find an audio clip of him saying this. But this is what he had to say about Philip Seymour Hoffman. When I saw him for the first time in Scent of a Woman... I just knew what true love was. I knew what love at first sight was. It was the strangest feeling sitting in a movie theater and thinking, he's for me, and I'm for him, (laughs) and that was that. Wow. Right? Isn't that just like a crazy, like, you know, that's... It's nice because it's like it's like a muse moment. Like, he's just, he's inspired by this, this performance, um... Wow, I mean that's great. Maybe we'll have to revisit that when we do we start our PT Anderson ones. I'll just read it before every <laughs> before Anderson every podcast. Yeah. So so, Kyle, take us through I guess Philip Seymour Hoffman's role then. As as you said, um, he basically him and Chris O'Donnell are those witnesses to this quote unquote crime. It's just yeah. really and and what is it exactly? It's like with the car. So yeah, after the next morning after they uh, keep that professor or. Philip Seymour Hoffman keeps her away, and Chris O'Donnell's just kind of stand there like a lost puppy. <laughs> and uh, the next morning... What a baby face, by the way. What a baby face. He's such a baby face. <laughs> he made such a good Robin, though. But then you have <laughs> oh, yeah. um, you have this new guy. He's the new headmaster, it seems like. New Dean, whatever. Yeah, yeah, the new headmaster. His name is Mr. Trask. He's playing, played by... I had to look up his name, but uh, the guy's name was uh, James Reborn, who unfortunately passed away in recent years. And he's just this guy. You see him in everything. Everything. First movie I ever saw him in was Blank Check. Blank Uh, Check, yes. But then he's, you know, he's like the douchey Secretary of State and Independence Day. Independence Day. Day. He's just the guy was, yeah, just like 
a working horse in the industry, you know? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. And so solid. he plays this. It's good, too. Yeah, exactly. He's great in this. He plays, yeah, he's a prick. <laughs> and he shows up in his Jaguar, and it just seems like none of the students are, like, maybe he's going to really crack down on them and stuff like that. So none of them are into him, especially this, like, douche squad. And so what they did is created this balloon that then filled up above pretty his creative. parking. Yeah, it's pretty creative, but they are going to, like, brilliant minds, future leaders or whatever. So True. Um, they put it on the lamppost that he always parks underneath his nice new Jaguar. Yeah, it was like a gift from Baird. And yeah, basically the board gave him the ja- this Jaguar, yeah. and he's got his own personal spot, and they hang uh, this balloon. This above balloon, it. and it has uh, like a cartoon picture of him. Uh, what was that? What was exactly on it? It was something rude. It was some rude the kissing ass. Ki- yeah, kissing, kissing hand. That must board. have been what it was. And they were even talking. That's the other thing. Talking on the loudspeakers. They heard those students' voices. They don't know the students. Yeah, voices. that there's a little a bit weakness. of holes there, and yeah. also like the. Those students weren't there. But what I, I thought about that, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we maybe we'll get into this later, but I think they kind of had an idea who it was. They just needed someone to finger them to officially give to them the punishment. Them? <laughs> no, they, they, they needed someone to, like, incriminate. Yeah them because like it seems like they well, do things like the right guy, way the, it just you know? seems like mr trask is a weasel too so he just like is like oh, i'm gonna get a weasel to weasel on yeah them, basically know? just like the snitch on them snitch and embarrass them and like aha someone else pointed the finger at you mm-hmm. that's maybe that's even in their honor code there yeah so uh so then he goes to pop the balloon and then i don't some kind of disgusting liquid also pops out. It's like milk him. or milk, something? I don't, I don't think it's milk. Whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know. It's something disgusting. A white substance. Don't get any ideas. Well, uh, yeah. Now we're just going <laughs> to... No, I didn't mean it like that. Um, it's, it's like a... Is it paint? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Whatever. It, it looks gets like all a over ruin. Him, yeah. It's all over his car. Over and the right jag. Over, And then all of a sudden, because of that female, uh, you know, professor... The professor, yeah. She obviously talks to Mr. Trask and says that, oh, you had uh, Charlie and, and George, George Jr. hanging out the library last night. They must have, they obviously didn't do it. But, you know, she saw, like, kids running away with a ladder. So she was like, bring him in, talk to him. And he tries to talk to them both. And George is just, like, right away, just, like, saying nothing. He takes the lead and just, you know, really, like, we'll have a nice Thanksgiving, you know. <laughs> and uh, he leaves the room. Wants, and uh, Trask wants to talk to Charlie just himself, thinking he can totally break Charlie, because he knows his predicament. He knows that he's there on, like, a, again, with scholarship, what do they call it? A grant. grant or... Whatever. And then, on top of that, he bribes him with, the poor kid, you know, working class family, bribes him with a getting into Harvard. Yeah, full ride guaranteed admission to Harvard. Paid for. Paid for four full years at Harvard if he snitches. And Charlie doesn't. Uh, you know, he you can tell he's conflicted. It's not so, like, clean cut. But he, he, you know, basically thinks about it, and it's left at that. And this is, I think, I don't know if we mentioned it yet, but this is right before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, yeah, we mentioned it with the ski trip. Everyone else is going away for Thanksgiving. I think Charlie at this point, like, obviously... He just has, like, he's such a good boy. He's such a good boy, Charlie. He's like, I don't know who's Salt better. Salt of the earth. Is this Charlie or Charlie in the Chocolate Factory a better Charlie? 
Um, I don't know. Who has a better? Maybe has, it's the same guy. Gene Wilder yelled, "You loser! You loser!" Good <laughs> Maybe day. it's the same guy. Maybe this is a sequel. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> but um, no, he would have had the money because then, because he owned a chocolate factory, so he wouldn't have had to send. True. But I mean, anyway. Maybe he got out of the chocolate business. Yeah. Maybe Willy Wonka tried to do things to him that he wasn't comfortable with. Yeah. Charlie's just a nice boy. <laughs> and I think at that point he thinks that George is like, this is his friend. I don't know. I, w- like, I don't know. I wouldn't say like a close friend, but he at least thinks that they're. It just seems like this kid works so hard. He also doesn't make a lot of friends there. Yeah. And, and, then, probably, and, then... and probably also a lot of kids there are snobby. Yeah. They're not really his people. And they, yeah. they know. These are the kind of parents that only want their kids hanging out with the right people. Yeah. And Charlie is not the right people to them, just because exactly. he doesn't come from money. So he's working hard at school, keeping that scholarship, working at the library, working these side jobs, like he's gonna how he's gonna meet uh, Frank Slade, and you know what? And that and that and that's that. And then we have Charlie move on, and then you know Phillips are off, and we just get through some phone conversations. But I mean, like I mean, we have to talk about, uh, despite like not being that Hoffman involved. We have to talk about the whole New York thing. By the way, I didn't realize it because, well, I guess this is a good question to I ask, Kyle. I love Dumbo. Yeah, that's great, but it's a good question to ask now. Like, had you seen this film before? Or Yeah, okay, so that's the thing. Um, I totally had must... I knew that he was in trouble. I never knew exactly what he was in trouble for. I must have only seen this film from, like, after the prank happened and, like, once he officially goes to start... Uh, you know, babysitting uh, Frank Slade, mm-hmm. who doesn't like to be uh, referred to as Sir, either Colonel or uh, Lieutenant. Yeah, Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant Colonel. Um, or Mr. Slade. Mr. Slade, I think he likes. What a cool last name. Yeah, it's cool. Slade. But yeah, so I think that so I've seen the film from that point, like through and def- and on a channel where you get all the. Fox and the curses and the everything like yeah, that. Yeah, I hadn't. I'd, I'd seen the film before, but what's the runtime here? It's like two hours and a half, right? Two hours and 40 minutes. Like, yeah, two and a half hours. Two, two and a half hours. And I had seen it years ago on like a cable channel, like a la like a TNT or a USA. Uh-huh. So I really didn't get the appreciation I did watching it now again. I love this movie. Yeah, it, it's a very good movie. It's not just—it's just all around great performances. It has the perfect amount of like memorable lines. Um, that like the uncomfortable scene—I love uncomfortable scenes. Uncomfortable scene at Thanksgiving with Frank's brothers, like side. Of the yes, and, and we'll get to that. But what I—I I guess what I never realized is how much of a New York film this is. I always pictured the prep school and stuff, and. and no, for majority of it, yeah, they're down in New York. And look, what I know Philip Zimmer Hoffman, the, uh... they stay at the Waldorf Astoria, but yeah. they eat at the plaza. It's just like yeah. rich, rich, rich. But The Oak Room. Yeah, the Oak Room. The Rolls. <laughs> oh my God, what do well, you, I just love him. It's Philip Zimmer Hoffman. Charlie, you gotta try the Rolls. Philip Zimmer Hoffman, uh, while not in the New York scenes, mm-hmm. always really feels like this New York actor, right? Like, he went to Tisch. He grew up in Rochester. Yeah, I mean, New York State, but like I'm talking about like New York City stuff. The mm-hmm. first film was a very much a New York City yeah. film. That's a good point. This film is... That's fair. We should we should count in the end. We'll do a tally. Yeah, I mean, because uh, it seems like well, he's... Off the top of my head, I can think of a bunch. Yeah, exactly. And it seems like he's very much like an... At least like a New York City guy. At least mm-hmm. he became... I know you mentioned that he grew up upstate. Um, but 
this is, again, like I said, he's not in the New York scenes here, but this is a true New York film. Yeah, it's really um, interesting because uh, so the director of this, his name is Martin Brest, and he directed uh, two of my favorite comedies, Midnight Run and Beverly Hills Cop. And like, yeah. No, let's not get in our heads. No, that's yeah. But Midnight Run. Uh, <laughs> what? Who? What's? Why am I blanking? Charles Grodin. Yeah, I Charles love Grodin. Charles Grodin. De Niro's in that. So he worked with De Niro, and he worked with Pacino. Good for that guy. Cool. <laughs> so, but it's just interesting. Like, I, he, you can see he brought like a good uh, sense of humor to this film. Yeah, it's definitely a funny film, and it's not, and not just like again. Oh, so I think we were touching on just like uh, Pacino in this. And it's a little bit of a character. He's a great, Pacino, I mean, all-time great character actor, right? Yeah. But now, like, in hindsight, Method we see this such, like, it seems like someone on SNL or something playing Pacino at uh, times. Yeah. But it's just, maybe that's what's, it's such an iconic role. But this movie, while so heavy at certain moments, is also very light at other moments. Yeah. It's, it, it's the funny. I laughed. Yeah. But it's also dealing with... An, Vets attempted suicide, you know? Yeah, so, like, just to briefly get into that, he's... Yeah, yeah, walk us through the whole, like, New York episode, which is in the majority of the well, film. also, the background on his injury is also, like, Slade isn't, not exactly, he's a dick. You've got a lot of... I think that's clear, he calls himself an asshole at times. Yeah, but, like, he got, he did it because he, I mean, so, again, they ask him at Thanksgiving, his, uh, his nasty nephew was like what is that called getting passed over or something like that in the military system like for yeah i mean they promoted other people over him him. so basically i mean just to set the scene um they go to new york like chris o'donnell's character Mm -hmm. thinks that he's just like essentially babysitting him as he said for the weekend in uh new england there and they they fly down to new york first class yeah and he thinks he's gonna fly back that night yeah, I mean, which is kind of silly and yeah, naive exactly. to think, yeah. but they go to New York, and he's just, Al Pacino's character, Slade, starts just spending all this money, and mm-hmm. um, they have fancy dinners, as you mentioned. Yeah, he saved up from all of his... His, uh, his checks, yeah. uh, pension, well, pension, I guess it's not pension in the military. No, is, it, is it called a pension? Yeah, I think he says something like that. And... Uh, and they just have a to-do list, and essentially he tells them that they they're just gonna live large until later that weekend he kills himself. Yeah, he does, just, he does, yeah, blow my brains out. Yeah, blow exactly. So it blows his brains out. But um, uh, he just has so many great lines. Like, remember, when in doubt, fuck. <laughs> and then was like I wrote it on Facebook well, the other day when you. When you stop looking, Charlie, you dead. <laughs> well, it's funny. Like we we haven't really mentioned this. It goes with the title. This guy's kind of a pervert. Oh, this film, I told you, yeah, I wrote this. It's totally, I love, I've said it for a long time, I call it the perv switch. <laughs> I don't care if they're Greek columns or secondhand Steinways. What's between them? Passport to heaven. There's only two syllables in this whole wide world worth hearing. It's like he lost... I don't know how he was before. I mean, it kind of implies that he was also wild before. Yeah. But he loses his he eyesight. He screwdrivers all the time. Yeah. Did we, <laughs> he, we mentioned he's blind, right? Like, it's the whole point of the film. <laughs> I, I th- yeah, I said in the beginning, in my okay. synopsis, a blind... Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. So, you know, he lost his vision. 
Um, Through a jerk-off accident of grenades. With grenades. Juggling grenades. Juggling grenades. <laughs> While he had, like, at least four screwdrivers in him. So, I mean, that's essentially why Charlie's his caretaker. Yeah. Because he's he's blind. Or he's and he's blind. living with his niece up in New Hampshire somewhere because his brother who lives in, like, White Plains doesn't even want him anymore. Yeah, basically no one wants this guy around because yeah. he's an She's asshole. Like and nice now he's, neat, and now nice he's a nice niece that lives in, like, the mother-daughter backyard cottage. Yeah. Now he's a blind asshole, basically. Yeah. And... It's a very weird dynamic. He's often a jerk to Charlie, mm-hmm. but he ends up, you know, building this relationship and like him, especially in New York. Well, he Re- hears him on the phone with Philip Hoffman at one point, or he hears it in his voice, and he's like, "What's the problem, Charlie?" Tell yeah, me. I think they're going out to dinner. Yeah, and so Charlie confides in limo. him about the whole scenario, and he gives his two cents, and he tells him rat at first. Yeah, he's like, "There's for most of the time, he's telling him to rat." Run, and there's. You know, run into battle, and there's who hide. He's like, hide. You know, something <laughs> along those lines. And some very, you know, kind of take like, you know, you're going to get screwed over by these rich pricks. Just, you know what? Tell that trash guy everything he wants to know. In New York, it's just super, there's just super iconic scenes. I mean, you were mentioning the dinner party with, what's that guy? I think Bradley Whitford is like the, the jerk-off nephew. He's from the West Wing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, always, one... I always think of him from... Uh, Billy Madison. Billy Madison, of course. <laughs> but he's um one of the things in their agenda is is for Slade to visit his brother mm-hmm. in Westchester County, you know, not a suburb of New York. And they go they go up there and basically he's not wanted there and he's still like his asshole self. The brother is asking Charlie right away, Who are you? And reasonably so you're in his house on Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. On Thanksgiving. Well, and we should say he came plates. uninvited. Yeah, he came uninvited. And it seems like he's done that a bunch of other times. Too. <laughs> I don't know exactly how long he's been blind for, but it just... Well, they mentioned that only recently is he completely blind. Yeah, he used to be able to see, like, shapes. Light and dark and, like, shapes and yeah, shadows, figures. but now he's, like, completely blind. But every once in a while, you know, like, even Chris O'Donnell says, Charlie says, like, are you looking at me, Colonel? Like, are you seeing me? Yeah, I think there's certain moments where, like, you're like, is he blind? Like, is that going to be the twist that he wasn't blind all yeah, along? That he's just, Which is yeah. not the case. Obviously. That's going to be safe for the Stevie Wonder movie. <laughs> he wasn't blind. That's blasphemous. I, I know this. <laughs> um, so that's the one iconic scene. He ends up getting sort of kicked out of the house, but they they he leaves on his own accord. But yeah. he gets into a huge fight with this nephew character. Yeah, he chokes, slams him against the wall. And there's two other iconic scenes that happen in New York. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, while these all these other things are happening, um, Charlie's calling um, George and seeing what's up. And Slade is kind of telling him, this guy's going to sell you out. This guy comes from money. He's going to call his father. His father's going to try to get him out of it. And he's not going to get you out of it. And he, he ends up being right. Oh, totally right. Um, yeah, he's just, by the last time, he's still on the phone. He's called him Chaz. Yeah, he's trying. Just like Weasley. He's up in Vermont, you know, at Stowe, something like that. Something like that. And my friend Shane would know. Shane, tell me. Call me up. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, and the last one, in, well, he calls and he says that his he's flying, he's catching the red eye, and he's flying into Logan or whatever to meet with his dad. And his dad, but his dad's gonna help him out, and then he tries calling their house, and the dad totally shuts him down, and says George Junior is not allowed to talk to anybody right now. Yeah, so you know something's up. Yeah. So the the other scenes I want to touch on in New York, and again we're trying to go more on the Philip Hoffman angle here, and less of the 
film angle, but you can't ignore certain things yeah. in this movie. What are you going to um, go first? Are you going to go with... It, well, uh, the tango scene is one of the most iconic scenes. You know, I read it took three days to shoot that. Really? And I, then, yeah. you know, that just really, that like really kind of bothers me <laughs> because then there's a great film from like what, technically two years ago now, but Creed, you know, they did that... Um, the, f- the first fight he's in in the movie. Yeah. It's like that one shot. And I remember reading it took 13 takes. It was the second day they were shooting. It They did 13 takes in this, like, like I don't know how long that fight is. It's, like, close to, like, five minutes, I feel like. And it's that one shot. And it was the first day also Stallone was on for Ryan Coogler. And, like, just, like, a whole bunch of pressure. And he did all of that, like, that five-minute one shot fight scene in one day and this is three days for this tango <laughs> me, and you, me and you are different here i don't ask how the sausage is made yeah like it doesn't really bother me how long it takes to do it as long as it's a great scene fantastic scene it just ultimately shows so again scent of a woman it all comes from like the first the first thing we cut well we see we hear him talking to like a hooker like on the phone. <laughs> on the phone when we on first meet phone. him, that's the first time we hear about Slate. Uh, yeah. Hear Slate in the phone. And like the niece knows it. She's like, the, her biggest thing is like water down the whiskey and keep him off the phone with like call, you know, call girls or whatever you want to call them, and like sex lines. And then the next time we witness it is the stewardess, and he even guesses her name. <laughs> and that's why we question his vision. He's like, but she's from California, <laughs> and you know, just a bunch of things. And he can usually just like, well, either guess their name. Well, the big thing is that he guesses their perfume. Almost it's a, always right. It's, yeah, perfume. He's a master of perfume, and then like hair color. Hair color, yeah. Which obviously there's not as many choices. Perfume is obviously the most impressive. The man just knows like the catalog <laughs> in and out. But um, yeah, the tango scene. So they're out to eat at like a fancy restaurant. Yeah, nice fancy. But it's like a day. It's lunch. Charlie even orders a beer, (laughs) and uh, you know, and he gets his John, and Frank gets his John Daniels, and then the the scent kicks in. Yeah, just this like spider. Charlie, tell me, tell me what's going on, Charlie. And it's this young. I think she's a twenty-two year old girl, beautiful. Yeah, just like a classic, like, um, who's. Breakfast at Tiffany's. What's her name? Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, she's like you know. yeah, that kind of style. Like even this is like a movie that, that takes place in the early '90s, but since they're spending so much money, they're so rich. There's a lot of old world New York here. A lot of old money, and she's an despite being so young, like an old New York beauty. Yeah, in that style, and and she's there waiting for somebody, and he goes up with Charlie and just says, "Can we keep you company?" And then just through his, he's, he definitely, he's a smooth talker. So he's, he's a creep, but he gets away with it because he's a smooth talker. And pretty much he gets her to like open up briefly. And she says that she's always wanted to learn to tango. And obviously it's the same guy she's waiting for for lunch that never takes her to tango. And he s- says, well, we, uh, you should tango right now. She thinks he's talking about Charlie. He's like, no, I'll tango with you. And they go out, and he gets Charlie to tell him the parameters of the dance, where the <laughs> band is, and they just kick in right away with this great tango number. And it is. It's such such a It's great. It's, it is really, a really great scene. Um, the, uh, yeah, and she, basically her boyfriend comes, and she leaves. I mean, and it's, it's really like, this is the only, besides for the sister, and I guess that professor, 
there's only like three women who have really good speaking lines in terms of, and I guess the stewardess as well. Sure. Um, the, not not too many women in this film doesn't doesn't pass any of those feminist tests. Yeah, whatever that. The Beechel to best. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, yeah that one. Yeah. Um, but then the next iconic scene, you gotta go with the Ferrari. Oh, I wasn't even thinking of that. Yes, of course, the Ferrari scene. Yeah, driving in Dumbo. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. I mean, but that takes but, but him out. Don't don't skip ahead because the next the iconic scene I was talking about is the whole him trying to kill himself. He puts on his military dress uniform. He takes his gun and he is going to kill himself, Slade. That's after that. No, it's not because this is he's like let's go for a ride. That's just when he's depressed in bed. Oh. After he has that the great tango scene or whatever and then after that he's a little then a little sad or whatever no yeah he meets up with a hooker yes that's part of that's part of his great weekend and then kill myself <coughs> to have a scent of a woman yeah just a scent of a woman all over him then blow his brains out <laughs> so and then the next day after the hooker he's upset in bed and now I, and now i get that a little bit more because we learn later on that he just wants to wake up and have a woman next to him, and he doesn't think he can have that in his life. So he's a little depressed, and Chris O'Donnell's like, let's just get some fresh air, let's go for a drive. They end up going to a Ferrari dealership, and Slade gives this guy, like, a couple grand or something like that, and they end up... Take some convincing. Yeah, take some convincing. But, instead, yeah, and says he's going to buy it, I think, or whatever. Test drive, And they take it to abandoned Dumbo at that time. Yeah, at first they're just kind of driving around the Manhattan streets, and then they want, you know, they kind of wanted to take it. Uh... Well, Chris O'Donnell's driving it, and then... Oh, yeah, we, we should be clear about this. he lets the blind guy drive. Yes, the blind. <laughs> and he's going faster and faster, wants to take turns, being reckless, you know. Yeah, Chris O'Donnell's kind of guiding it, but still probably not a good idea to let a blind guy drive. A Ferrari. A Ferrari, or anything really, but especially anything a Ferrari. Anything but a Ferrari. Take That's a not yours. Turn, and then they, <laughs> yeah, and then they get pulled over, again, just through his charm, talking to the cop, gets out of it, like, I guess, you know, because he has his eyes open and hands his military ID. They, he says his license is at the um, at the dealership and stuff like that. Gets out of the ticket. Yeah, the guy's a vet, too. Like, I think he was in the Coast Guard. Which yeah, is... the Coast Guard, he laughs. <laughs> um, but... Then after that, then again, he goes through this, like, you know, depressedness and is, like, walking on the streets and walks through traffic and falls over and he's just really depressed. And then we get back and Chris O'Donnell goes to check on him in his hotel room and he's wearing his, what does he call him, the whatchamacallit blues? His blues, his dress blues. His dress blues, yeah. yeah. And he's in all, like, the fancy garb, all those, you know colorful badges and stuff like that that I have yeah and he's got his before. officer's pistol yeah and, and he's, he's ready and that's hey what he's been saying the whole time he's ready to do it and it's an emotional scene yeah and give it to Chris O'Donnell you know unfortunately I think they were definitely thinking he was going to be like the next big dramatic actor didn't really pan out that way but he I mean pulled, like I said he, he carries against Pacino yeah he, he plays a great scene of Pacino and now he has like a regular TV show unless it's cancelled his yeah his, NCIS Los Angeles, Los Angeles with Cool J. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, he does a very good job here. Yeah, and just emotionally pulls him in. He even says, like, 
fine, do it. Like, kill me too, you know? Like, yeah, because actually uh, Slade threatens to kill him if he yeah. stops him. So I'm going to take your life, Charlie. Your life is over already. You're going to end up back in the convenience store, and you're just going to have a heart attack when you're saying to somebody, have a nice day. <laughs> Get out of here! Stay right here. I'll blow your fucking head off. Do it. You want to do it? Do it. Let's go. Get out of here! Well, you fucked up, all right? So what? So everybody does it. Get on with your life, would you? What life? I got no life! I'm in the dark here! Do you understand? I'm in the dark! So give up. You want to give up, give up. Because I'm giving up too. You said I'm through, you're right, I am through. We're both through, it's all over. So let's get on, let's fucking do it. Let's fucking pull the trigger, you miserable blind motherfucker. Just through like raw emotion convinces Slade not to do it. It says put down the gun and everything like that. And then they just have this nice little drink, and they just, again, open up to one another. And Slade, at that moment, says how he w- just wants to have... He's given up, and he doesn't. Ex- he's not going to have a great love in his life. He just wants to have, you know, would love to just have a woman to wake up next to. And yeah, to, which uh, he essentially... That's basically what... He doesn't think he's ever going to get that. Yeah. And so, I mean, they just kind of come to this understanding that life does suck but <laughs> you gotta face it head on and so uh they missed their flight or whatever or pacino never had a flight for himself because he was planning on blowing his brains out chris o'donnell meet misses his one-way flight back home so they have their uh the limousine driver they've had this whole new york little mancation that they've had <laughs> uh brings them back up to new hampshire he's not good at goodbyes you know just they dr- they drive off charlie goes into that hearing you got him sitting alone, you got the panel in the middle, yes. and you got George Jr. and George Sr. on the other side, and the whole student body. Looks like it was in the cathedral. Um, or something like that. I'm not sure. I mean, it does have, like, like either a credo of some, like, religious But I thought I saw, like, a crucifix or a cross in the back. It, but that could just be... That could just be where they filmed. It's yeah. just, like, in this big, old-style assembly hall. Yeah, whole student body is there. And... While uh, Trask is still getting, like, the proceedings started, you get Slade coming in and saying that he's a family friend of uh, Charlie's parents, and he would like to speak on behalf of him, and just goes into, here, let's just play a little, we'll play a little Philip Seymour Hoffman, but then we'll play a little, like, a little clip, because it's a long thing, but Pacino just... Boy, he sells it. Oh, if it, boy. If it wasn't any scene before this, this is what got him that Oscar. This is a great monologue. Yeah. This is what student actors study. <laughs> like I say, it was blurry. Uh, I can't see without my contacts. <laughs> what did you say, Mr. Willis? You mean definitively? Stop fencing with me, Mr. Willis. Tell me what you saw. 
All right, now don't hold me to this, but uh, no contacts. It's dark. And everything, I mean... Mr. Willis! Maybe... Harry Havemeyer, Trent Potter, and Jimmy Jameson. Maybe. Paul Park, best guessing. Sir, you're out of order. Out of order? I show you out of order. You don't know what out of order is, Mr. Trask. I'd show you, but I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too fucking blind. If I were the man I was five years ago, I'd take a flamethrower to this place. Out of order. Who the hell do you think you're talking to? I've been around, you know. There was a time I could see. And I have seen boys like these, younger than these, their arms torn out, their legs ripped off. But there is nothing like the sight of an amputated spirit. There is no prosthetic for that. You think you're merely sending this splendid foot soldier back home to Argonne with his tail between his legs, but I say you are executing his soul! And why? Because he's not a bad man. Bad men. You hurt this boy, you're gonna be bad bums. The lot of you. And Harry, Jimmy, Trent, wherever you are out there, fuck you too! They hear that, the meaning the uh, faculty, and it seems like others, maybe some students are in that as well, that panel, it looks like. He looks like a mixed panel, it's a disciplinary panel. And there, and Trask is like, well, we're gonna go back and talk about it in a separate room. And, and this this panel, this jury is just like, it just like you could just, I don't know. Again, hearing those other kids' voices, they even like uh, Phillips and Robin kind of says maybe, and he names those three people his friends. So he snitches yeah, in a little he, way. He, he snitches. Saying, his father kind of convinces him. His father yeah. whispers this big thing in his ear. and he, he snitches, but he gives himself enough reasonable doubt. And what he does is he kind of passes the buck to Charlie. Yeah, because of the whole, con- as we heard through that clip, his, you know, he didn't have his contacts in. And so pass- passes the blame to Charlie, and Charlie just won't, you know, integrity, courage. <laughs> and the panel sees this, and gives the uh, the three douches a suspension. But it's nothing. It's it's nothing major. They don't get expelled or anything because. Which again, and that's an, that's. I'm sorry. That's harsh. What? Anyone getting expelled? Over oh, I agree. But on these prep schools, you know, it's like yeah, of course, it's a different ball game. But um, so yeah, so no one gets in big time trouble, and the biggest thing is Charlie's still there. Now we don't know, obviously. I mean, hopefully he uh, goes on and goes to Harvard or some elite college school or gets some kind. Of, I think no matter what, go, being able to continue his education. At yeah, Baird, he's gonna go to a great he's school. He's gonna get into. They even said twenty five percent of them go to Harvard. Yeah. Or some, some some absurd exactly. number like that. So you know what? He gets acquitted. They walk out. And then keeps have, his honor. Keeps his honor. <laughs> and then that uh, auburn-haired professor. Yeah, I think she was on the disciplinary committee. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she comes out, 
and just wants to talk to Slayton right away. He's a smooth talker. Putting and, on his charm. And Charlie says how he was on LBJ's staff. Oh, and she literally, like, she quivers. Yeah. <laughs> She's all and excited. And he, he asks her out. And she yeah, says, and says, I know where to nice find you. And, and, like, that's his hope that he'll get a woman to... Yeah. Uh, he uses be there the next powers, night. and but this could be, she's like oh, the, know, with the perfume, he actually smells her perfume. Yeah, this guy knows the scent of a woman. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Charlie goes with him back to the house, but he's just even uh, just wants to walk up to the house by himself. And then the, you just see the final character arc of on top of it. So it looks like everything. Uh, Charlie's acquitted. Uh, Slade p- potentially meets a woman, and then he walks up and he has nice banter with his what would that be great niece and great nephew yeah at the beginning of the film he was just kind of curmudgeoning to his niece and nephew we'll call them yeah but now he's just it's almost he has a new lease on life like it sounds corny but it's a nice movie and it's a nice ending wrapped up perfectly wrapped up perfectly so I have to ask I mean we touched on it before with Philip Seymour Hoffman what do you think made him so appealing to uh, casting directors or directors in general after this, I mean, P.T. Anderson, I mean, you read that quote before, it's, it says wonders about this. Like, and what do you think in his role as George made him so attractive to basically ignite the fire that went on for the rest of his career, the rest of his life? So it's a very shallow, one-way character, you know? And he takes it, and he almost makes you, like, sympathize with him. He just adds... A, not just a layer, but multiple layers to the character that makes you, whether you don't like him, like him, just makes you think of someone you knew. He just adds more dimensions, more layers to this character, and that's what I think, you know, it, it's not like he has any monologues that, I think that's something, you have your actors that when they're given time to speak, you get to see their craft. That's what we said last time, like the whole stupid corny thing, but it's true, like no small parts. Yeah, and he's someone right away, like I wrote the top of my notes right here, I just say like his body language is excellent. Right there, I wrote that. He has a presence. His body language, he just has this, he does great, you know, when he had his longer hair, he does like the little... With, you know, like little shakes of his hair. He has great, like, hand gestures. He's very, like, open with them, you know, like, very fluid, like, motions, talks with his hands. And he just has, I don't know, it's like something, again, it's just his his faces that he makes. He just has this vulnerability and just his eyes, his lips, just, like, make this very deep, I don't know, just add, a, like, a deep emotion. Well, you, you mentioned that, like, this is a one-dimensional character. And, and maybe you're right. More importantly, I think, I think most actors would have played this super one-dimensionally, and mm. he gives a like. There's there's more layers to this character who should just really have one layer. Mm-hmm. You do at times realize why Charlie would think that maybe he's a friend, because he seems he doesn't seem like the rest of that douche clique. No, he doesn't. But he really is. Like, l- let's face it. Yeah, he seems like. He wasn't, maybe his his father, while keeping an eye on him, George Willis Sr., that is, keeping an eye on Junior, was very, like, involved with, like, work, and so he kind of had, like, 
car blanche of like very. Well, even the way he wears his suit, uh, his blazer. Yeah, he's is. like a white Will Smith. <laughs> Bel Air. No, it's like, true. Like he has, he yes, he goes to prep school, but he's a little bit rebellious and a little. Well, he just he did, well, and again, that kind of like goes into because he plays some great sloppy. Uh, you know uh, characters true. in the future and so he has this like little bit of sloppiness to him and again he has that slyness to the professor but then he does like clean up and he has but he has that vulnerability but then he just has like a very you know he talks like this and just very monotone when he's talking to authority well it's funny because th- there's always this thing of like you're being typecasted in your first breakout role you're going to take all roles that are are like this and maybe that's the case for him because a lot of roles seems to have be like you're saying like in this cookie cutter mold but he still makes it enjoyable and fun it doesn't feel like he's just this is a douche i'm playing a douche he definitely feels like a character whereas the other people in this douche gang we were discussing mm-hmm. they just feel like straight 100 percent douches and maybe it was ran that way yeah um i mean i just think he does a great job clearly i mean he he's it's a breakout role for him Definitely. Again, he credits it. We have the his biggest collaborator as far as director credits this film as recognizing him and then ending up writing his first role in a hard uh, hard eight for him. But it's just we're still it's only we're our second film in and we're getting some real meat, real juicy character here. Well, that's what that's what excited me so much about this little project we're doing here. Um, Look, not every movie here is going to be great. I think we acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. But I'm just... We're two films in, and we're already seeing this guy's greatness at such a young age. And it's just its its just a super exciting thing. Yeah, this is definitely a rewatchable film. You know, again, it's a smaller Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, so it really comes down to Pacino in this film. But... Again, it's just another great role of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, it, it's this is this is a blockbuster film. We get one as our second film that we're doing in, in our series here, and it's a movie I think a lot of people have seen, but not necessarily for Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And I hope you know after listening to this podcast that you'll rewatch it not only because it's a really good movie, but just to see see it in the context of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. The, the film we'll be talking about next week... My New Gun. Um, not My not... New Gun. <laughs> I don't have a gun. My New Gun. Not the same. Uh, not the same... Uh... <laughs> no, it's not the same, uh, I guess, following A Scent of a Woman. It's not the same... No. doesn't have the same cachet. I think the biggest name in that, that movie at that point is uh, Diane Lane. Diane Lane, yeah. Um and then the father from Seventh Heaven who ended up touching people. Oh, like, uh, I forgot seventh about that. Heaven, when you touch a little kids in their special uh, areas. All right, let's. Seventh <laughs> Damn it! I'm not sure I want pedophile jokes. <laughs> oh, how, wait, I know we're recording now. This is not going to be enough. But how are we going to avoid that? Not going to be the same experience as this film. My new gun, our new film. Like, it's our new film for the podcast. <laughs> We're not claiming ownership to my new gun. No. Maybe after seeing it, we no, won't. No, so, I'm not, correct me, I mean, we usually state this in the episode, but have you seen it? I have not seen it. I have not seen it either. So, we will go watch that. Let's dive in. Let's dive into my new gun, and we'll see you guys next week. Yep. As always, I'm Brian Rodriguez. And I'm Kyle Reinfried. 
And this has been another episode of P.S. I Love Hoffman. See you guys next week. hoo The rolls. You gotta try the rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Puerto Rican make the best infantry, man. Oh, we didn't even see the best. Sexy things, sexy things. I believe in miracles.